You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning, Northway family. My name is Mason Sheffield. I serve on our connections team here at Northway. Uh, We will be reading from Philippians 2, 3 through 10 today. Please open your Bibles with me. If you do not have one, there should be one under the seat in front of you. This is Philippians 2, starting in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which of yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, brother. Hey, guys, good morning. Good to see y'all. Open to Matthew 2, if you would. We'll continue in our series, Uh, Jesus Through the Eyes. And uh, that was a a, a homage to last week. Uh, Simeon was last week. Jeff McWhorter did that. Uh, We are very much on Herod this week, or I don't have a sermon for you. Um, But uh, yeah, I'm excited. Uh, This this series is just, um, the idea is to go, who are some central characters that we see in the incarnation and what can we learn about Jesus through their eyes? Uh, Who was Jesus to them and through them, what does that mean Jesus is to us? And so we continue in our series. Next week, we'll talk about the Magi. Week after that, we'll talk about Mary and we'll end Christmas Eve talking about the shepherds. And so that's where we're going this Advent season. This Advent season, we're in Matthew 2 and we're talking about... um, Herod today, which is interesting. Before we get into it, I just wanted you guys to know, I feel like this is pastorally important. Uh, If your team is on the losing side of the college football playoff announcement here uh, in a couple hours, uh, just know I'll be down front after the uh, 11.15 service. Uh, And as an Aggie, I'm thoroughly acquainted with grief. And so I can, uh, I can, I can pray for you in that. Uh, And so anyway, it's just so significant uh, a thing right now. I feel like I had to address it in a sermon. Wow, I have, I have problems. Um, so <clears throat> anyway, uh, we, need, we need to talk about Herod. And uh, there are a few things that I want to talk about with Herod. He's a guy we need to know. The first thing is, who was he? Secondly, why is he a threat to Jesus? Thirdly, what does Herod actually show us about the human heart? And then the last thing is, why is Jesus a better king than Herod? And so that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. And let me start with some background on Herod. Uh, This guy was a fascinating deep dive for me, man. He, uh, Herod, Herod the Great, as he he was known, was a smooth operator. Uh, He was a shark. He was stealthy. He was a savage. He was a power-mongering politician. Uh, He's born in 72 B.C., His father is an Edomite, which means he is from Esau's line. His mother is Jewish, so he's not fully Jewish. He and his people would have adopted many Jewish customs. 
He would claim Judaism his entire life, but he very much elevated pagan worship all around him. And I'm sure as you were thinking, as you were driving to church this morning, you were thinking about what I'm about to say, because I know you know this from somewhere, because the backdrop is important. What's happening in Judea at the time uh, is that, or during his time, is that the Romans and the Parthians were fighting. I'm sure you remember that, right? About who was going to take back Judea, uh, who was controlled for about a hundred years, give or take, by the Hasmonean dynasty. And I'm sure you remember all of that. And so he is caught up in the midst of that, this battle of uh, Rome against the Parthians. Uh, and he and his father, his father is also a bit of an operator and has some ties to Rome. And so uh, while the Parthians and the Romans are fighting, Herod uh, has the great idea uh, to leverage some of those connections in Rome, including a connection with Mark Antony. Yes, you remember his name from both history and English. He's the one that Shakespeare wrote about, married to Cleopatra. Yes, that guy. So he goes to Rome and does a deal with Mark Antony. And uh, he comes back to uh, the area with Rome's backing, visits the Senate and says, I can defeat the Parthians once and for all. So he goes back with their army and he wins about 40 BC and he is named, rightfully so, you ready for this? The King of the Jews, 40 BC, that is his title. Okay, but he has to establish legitimacy now that he's back. We talked about he had some problems because his father was an Edomite. So because he's seen as a half Jew, he's a political tactician, and he's going to marry Miriam, who is the heir of the former Jewish dynasty, that Hasmonean dynasty. Um, anyway, I know you're keeping up with me. Uh, to, so, and so he has to solidify himself by marrying her. But you ready for this? Several years later, he has her killed. And he has their child killed because she double-crossed him. The dude is such a, whatever word comes to your mind, such a political operator that he kills his wife and his kids. So savage is this guy that the Roman emperor Augustus said this about him, that it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. And so he embarks on about a 40-year reign, give or take, and that uh, his reign is known uh, by his shrewd leadership, his paranoia. Uh, he's a great warrior. He's a great general. He is an ambitious builder. He rebuilds the second temple, the temple that Jesus will go to. He has much to do with the rebuilding of that, Caesarea Maritima, and then Herodium, just to name a few. What's interesting about his death, he dies 4 A.D., and when he dies, dies in Jericho, and he is so concerned that people will not come to his funeral, that he actually orders a bunch of people to come and he wants them to be killed at his funeral so that the grief is so exaggerated that everybody in the area mourns him. It actually doesn't go that way. And so he, in a great irony, dies without the celebration that he wants, but he does leave a uh, legacy. We'll hear about many of his children's throughout, th children throughout uh, the Gospels and the book of Acts. There are other Herods that we hear about. One commentator said it well about him, that he kept a kosher table, he kept Jewish custom, but he saw anyone and everyone ultimately as an ally or 
a threat. And that's Herod in a nutshell. So let's talk about why Jesus was a threat to Herod. And let's turn to Matthew 2. We'll read the chapter. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the last days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Remember that. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, you think? And all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. This is Micah 5.2. And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least amongst the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So he's full on investigating now. Verse 7, then Herod Summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what the star, what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, so that I may worship him too. Sure. Verse 9. And listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they, re they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gifts of, gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return by Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. They wisened up. Again, we'll talk more about the Magi. Um, more about the wise men next week. So I'm not going to spend a ton of time there. Verse 13. Now, when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Look how many times you see the word dream throughout the rest of the chapter. God's providence to protect his Messiah. So the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and mother, flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Verse 16. And then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in that region who were two years or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Uh, this is known in church history as the killing of the innocents. They're known by the early church as the first martyrs, the Christian church, verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, verse 18. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, for she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. 
And he rose and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, he was afraid to go there. Being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled and that he would be called a Nazarene. Okay, <clears throat> why was Jesus a threat to Herod? Because Herod is a self-sovereign. He's a control freak. He is constantly consumed by every detail of his life going his way. You see that in the text. He gathers every religious leader in Judea to understand this messianic prophecy, like literally to call the whole academy and I want to understand this only to have an ulterior motive to get the guy killed. He manipulates the Magi on a spiritual quest to find God. Oh, wow, we saw a star and we're here from a foreign land to find God. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's great. But tell me more about that. I want to know. He, uh, He has every boy in Bethlehem under two years of age killed in the massacre of the innocents. Why? Because Jesus was an absolute threat to his power. He was an absolute threat to his power. And and this kind of leads to our third point. What does Herod show us about the human heart? Guys, it's so easy to judge Herod. Like if we're trying to justify ourselves, it's really easy to look at Herod and go, man, my life might be hard, but at least I'm not that guy. You know, I mean, we can, I think, collectively say in this room that most of us have never had anybody whacked. And that was Herod's life for as long as he was an adult, basically just having people killed. But I think if we drill down a little bit further into this text, we're going to see that Herod's heart and our heart are, have a lot in common. We have a lot of Herod in this heart right now. What do I mean by that? I mean that We have to go back to the beginning. The story is good for us that God creates this world for us in the garden, creating this or establishing this creator created relationship. And in that relationship, there's this invitation to work, this invitation to, uh, to, to play, if you will. And then these limits, not too many limits, like it's all yours to enjoy, but there's these limits like, hey, don't do that that are actually set up for our flourishing. And then the beautiful deceptive serpent comes in and what does he do? He questions God's word and he questions God's character. Did God really say that all of that is true? And the man and the woman believe that lie. And our response is to agree with the serpent to despise the limitation of the garden. And uh, I think that we feel as Christians that our hearts are not aligned when that happens. Like when we, we tell, we tell uh, our kids that obedience brings joy and disobedience, disobedience brings disaster. And I think we feel the lack of alignment that comes when we don't live for our creator. And the Bible says that that lack of alignment brings shame and it brings insecurity, but yet our MO is still going to be to continue to reject the limits of a loving father to push on those limits and to pretend that we are not limited and to seek to overcome our limitations with a will to power 
to control the things around us. And this is even more compounded in 2023. We do have a Herod heart, I believe, but it's more compounded in 2023 when what we're always discipled into, what the telos of our life seems to be, at least by a worldly standard, just to feel good and to be happy and to acquire everything we want. That is the goal to feel good and to be happy and to acquire everything we want in our short lives. Here's what's interesting on what we can actually control. Tim Keller helped me with this in his great book, Counterfeit Gods. He makes this point. It's not unique to him, but I want to quote him. That if you really step back and you think about it, about 95% of your life and my life, give or take, is completely out of our control. What do I mean by that? Your parents, your childhood, your childhood environment, the century you were born in, where you were born, what you look like, most of your talents, your circumstances, completely out of your control. Like what we can actually control is so little And yet for whatever reason, we still just want to control all of it. Guys, I see it in my life. It's probably my most besetting sin is just wanting to control even little things. I'm actually okay in like bigger crises, but like little things just drive me insane. I mean, I I just, I I, I could just keep going there, do self-therapy, but um Man, I see it, guys. I see it in us. I said, you know, I, I'm, I've done so many weddings being a pastor at a, you know, young church. And uh, my goodness, like, do uh, you know how many times I've seen a, a good wedding get hijacked by this insane attention to detail? It's like, here, here's the most, here are the people who love you the most in the whole world coming together for this most good and wonderful celebratory thing. You, you're going to go back and look at pictures of that day and go, wow, remember when we were all together and the beauty and the joy of that day and the gospel and the bride and the groom coming together in a covenant of love I've seen get hijacked because it's 645 and the cake hasn't been cut yet. Where's the cake guy? Where's the camera? Like, no, 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 no. Groomsmen, you're supposed to turn this way. Like your feet are supposed to be pointed that way as if anybody cares. (laughs) And I'm not saying that excellence isn't in the details. It is, but I mean, my goodness, from dating and the people we think we have to date and what we think they have to look like and the kind of job we think and the kind of salary we think we have to have. I'm telling you guys, there is this, there's this obsessive control oriented thing and it's a besetting sin for me. And I think the first thing that we need to recognize is we actually can't control most of our lives. Most of the things about us are completely outside of our control, but that doesn't stop us. And so where do we start? Like it starts with this question. It starts with the frustration about God's providence. That's where it starts. And there are these questions I'm talking about myself where you begin thinking about what you don't have, what you think you need, but you don't, but what you think you need, what you think you lack. And you feel the need. I feel the need to control the details of our lives to our liking. Is this you? It's me. You feel the need to control circumstances, people. Do you see people? You see, are you like Herod? Do you see people in your life as a threat to you? You know, what's underneath anger and annoyance is always a a desire to control, always. 
What's underneath your anger and your annoyance is always a desire to control something. And if you want to know what you care about the most, just look to your daydreams and look to your nightmares. Look at what you do with your solitude. Look at where your mind goes when there are no stressors on you. What you think about, that's what you care about the most. For Herod, it was about power. It was about self-sovereignty. You know, Herod knew the Psalms But what Herod could never say is this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. He couldn't say that because he wasn't okay with God's day for him. He was only okay with his day for himself. Is that you? It's certainly me. What do we need to do? We need to recognize that we actually have such little control over our lives and yet try to control every little thing instead of trusting, here it is, in the providence and the provision and the protection of a good father. Why was Jesus a threat to Herod? Because only Herod could be king of the Jews. That was his title. And there was no room for a sovereign. You know what's interesting is in Acts 4, the, the, the disciples tell us that Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, conspired against Jesus and put him on the cross. Herod is named there, but we have problems. We, we, have the, we have the same problem too. We have a little bit of Herod in our heart. What do I mean? I mean this, that the God who comes for us in Advent is the God who we will still put on the cross. Why? because we don't want his story, we want our story. And one of the most important things about Christianity is recognizing, and John Stott says this, that before we see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. That we join the mockers too saying, I don't want you, God, get out of my way. I don't want you. And so we have a little bit of Herod in our heart but that helps us because we have the ability to see Jesus as the better king. What do I mean? Why is Jesus the better king than Herod? You see, Herod wanted to control every little detail of his life to acquire ultimate power that he never truly possessed. But Jesus, who truly possessed ultimate power, set it aside in the incarnation so that by his life and resurrection, he could redeem every little detail of our lives. Herod said, serve me or die. Jesus said, I'll die serving you. Herod said, control everything, trust only yourself, gain power, deny everyone who threatens you. Jesus said, control nothing, trust God completely, lose power and love everyone who threatens you. What's the difference? Here's the difference. King Herod's life ends completely turned inward, trusting no one but himself towards a lonely and paranoid death. Jesus's life ends with a supreme trust in the goodness of God amidst excruciating suffering, yet confident that his death gives way to a resurrection and a promise that everything must and will turn out for good. That's the difference between Herod and Jesus. So how do we grow to see King Jesus as better? That's a really important question for us. How do we grow to see King Jesus is better? We have to see, number one, that Herod's way leads to death. Here's an exercise, okay? 
For those of us who are power hungry, thinking that there is a power or a status that we can acquire. And once we have that status or that power, everything's going to be okay. I want you to do a little exercise, okay? And maybe trust me or the people around you. Here's the question. Have you ever gotten some of that quote unquote power you sought after only it realized that it bred more a desire for more control? Okay, maybe think like Voldemort here, but I won't go into that. Here's what's interesting. Powerful people, powerful people, quote unquote, powerful people are typically the most isolated and fearful people among us. They are so afraid of losing. They have no lasting identity. They can only live for the next injection of whatever gives them self-worth. Some of the most quote unquote powerful people around you are the most isolated and the most lonely and the most fearful and the most paranoid. There is no life here. There is no life with this kind of MO. There is only pain. We were not created for this. Most of our life is completely out of our control. And this is God's way. This is the way. This is God's way. Do you hear that? The overwhelming majority of, the, of, of your life and your detail are completely out of God's control, completely out of your control and completely in God's control. And God's like, yes. I did it that way. We have to see, and this is huge, we have to see unfavorable circumstances in our lives, the things that we want to control, not as something that we have to herit our way out of, but actually things that God is doing, the gift of a sovereign king giving us things that are for our good. We have to see people not as threats and bystanders in the way of our self-actualization, but people that we can love and serve. We have to see that Herod's way leads to death. And if you haven't experienced that yet for yourself, learn it from somebody else, because I promise you it's true. I promise you, if that's the currency of your life, I promise you it's true. Secondly, we have to see that Jesus's way leads to life. Here is my sermon in a nutshell, okay? This is it. Remember this, take this home tonight, okay? The more that you believe that God loves you, the more you will trust God in navigating the details of your life. The less you believe God loves you, the less you will trust him navigating the details of your life. That's it. You have to immerse yourself in the gospel, the love of God. That's what you have to do. Immerse yourself in the gospel and the love of God. Practically, this means that you have to repent. You have to walk away from the Herod in your heart. And you have to say, I wasn't, con- I wasn't created to control everything. God, I recognize that in me. Help me to trust. Secondly, it means that you have to tell the people around you what you're struggling with. That I'm frustrated what I don't have with what I don't have. I believe that I'm lacking, that I need this, and it's causing me to control things. And I feel this control welling up in my heart. And I need you to know this. And if you don't have those people, can I, tell, can I spend some pastoral capital right now and just tell you that your prayer life and your life in community are probably the two most important things about you. And so if you would give attention to your prayer and being honest with God about the things you struggle, and if you would fight like you know what for community, think about the thing that you are most passionate about in your life. 
whatever it is that wakes you up and say, God, would you help me to fight the same way to, to, for community so that I can love and serve and care for people who love and serve and care for me. And if you don't have those kinds of relationships, may, may, can I just spend all the capital I have and tell you, especially going into the new year, that fighting for those relationships will end up being as significant a blessing as you can find. Because you have to have people in your life who you share your burdens with. And you have to talk to God about it. Those are practical things. The third thing, pray for God's love to overwhelm you so that you can trust him. Pray that God's love would overcome you so that you can trust him. And remember guys, we are surrounded by people in every direction who are seeking to control every little detail of their life on a quest to feel good and to be happy. And a significant reason as to why God has us here is to show them the blessing of living under the providence and the beauty, the, the providence and the provision and the protection of a loving God. So may our lives be sweet to them. Amen. I, uh, I went to Israel. Um, this was a couple years ago on the Northway tour. It was awesome. You should go. And um, I got to see Herodium and uh, Herodium, I believe was Herod's ultimate treasure like his, uh, his magnum opus build. And uh, Herodium is like palace meets fortress. It's up on a hill for everybody and their dog to see it. Uh, it's where he lived, spent a lot of time, uh, several miles south of Jerusalem. And uh, you go tour, it's fascinating, man. There, were, there, were, like, there was a theater, like an actual theater there. Um, what they recovered of the way that it was designed was so ornate and beautiful. There was a bathhouse. There was just, I mean, it was bougie, okay? Bougie. And so you go there and uh, you're like, oh, wow, this is really cool. And then our tour guide, who was just, you know, brilliant, had great timing, said, all right, guys, I want to show you all one last thing on the way out. And uh, I'll never forget this for the rest of my life. And uh, he said, all right, stand over here. And uh, just in the most, like, kind of humble and, uh, you know, oh, by the way, sort of way. He was just like, hey, look over the valley, look over there. And he said, any of y'all know where, what that is? And we said, no. And he said, that's Bethlehem. And uh, I went, okay, I, I get it. And um, irony of ironies is it's very likely from where Jesus was born that he could see Herodium, Herod's palace, and that in some way Herod could look down and see where this threat to him was born. And uh, it's just so fascinating to me that Herod, who lived for self-preservation and power, I think probably grandiose dreams of an empire that last him into several generations, a dynasty that lasts centuries, actually quickly lost that after his first set of children and that his dynasty went to the wayside. But the biggest threat to his life across the valley in poverty and obscurity, literally hewn out of the side of a mountain, a poor little child was born whose life and legacy would actually permeate in every direction around the world. And it was a really compelling picture of Herod's way and Jesus's way. 
I feel like we have the choice to remember this morning with the recognition that we have some Herod in our hearts. Are we going to actively recognize and put to death our desire towards self-sovereignty and embrace the love of God? Embrace the mercy of God, the God who came for us, even though we were the ones who put him on the cross. And the God who said that my desire is to come not to get, but to give, not to be served, but to serve. To the degree that that story can overcome your life, overpower the strong desires we have in our heart, we can be the kind of people who see that Jesus is the better king. And I pray this morning that that story encourages our hearts. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for um, just the, the, the gospel that we see in this story, the good news of Jesus's life. I thank you that the, the threat that um, Jesus was to Herod is the threat that Jesus is to us, the, the actual king, the actual sovereign. Lord, may his story resonate in our hearts and would it change us and would it help us to renounce foolish things, kingdom building, control over things that you have not asked us to control. But rather, would the life of Christ by the Holy Spirit help us to see people as not people to overcome, people to look past people as threats to us, but rather people to love and serve? Would it help us to see untimely circumstances as things that we can lean in and gain the most from you through the discomfort? And would it help us not to take ourselves and our lives so seriously so as to miss the blessing of a surrendered life to you? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 4 p.m. and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.